so I ran 20 copies and just doing a quick count, it may mean that one couple will have to just share a copy. Uh, you can tell I've been busy this week. I think there's five pages of notes here, which we probably will not get through tonight. But I have determined not only to follow Jesus, but I have determined that we are going to take our time. Uh, the reason that I think it's important for us to do this is because I think the book of Daniel is so important. You know, Daniel is looked at as really the key to future biblical prophecy. There are things that Daniel foretold that are so accurate and so absolutely amazing from his position 2,500 years ago uh, that are zeroing in on our time today. Not only this, but when we do a study, if we're really going to, you know, cover all the bases and, and uh, just bring in all the details, there are a lot of different factors that come into play. We're talking about history. We're talking about language and culture. Obviously, as I mentioned, prophecy. But also the lessons. I mean, if you just stop and think, the book of Daniel breaks down into two parts. The first part is events that were happening to Daniel and his friends. And then the second part is pretty much all prophecy looking forward to the future. I didn't mention this before, and I don't know if I even got it into your notes, because as I mentioned in these notes, sometimes those of us who teach are fallible and you know we we can't cover everything I may have left this out but Daniel's actually written in two languages uh, it's written in Hebrew and it's written in Chaldean or Aramaic and we're going to uh, see how that works out as we go through the book and why would Daniel write it that way the very fact that he wrote it that way, you know, Daniel, because of its importance, has been the most attacked prophetic book in the Bible. If the critics could somehow negate the book of Daniel, well, it'd be very hard for them to do because he keeps being right and they keep being wrong. Um, but it really validates that Daniel is the author of this book and that he wrote it in the circumstances that he wrote it in during the captivity of Judah for 70 years while they were in exile in Babylon. So we're going to be, as I say, going through slowly. And interestingly, some of his prophecies may be fulfilled while we're in our study, which would make it especially exciting. So we're going to pick up where we left off last time. I mentioned last time when we got to chapter 1, verse 8, uh, that we could actually take a little workout, a little exercise for our soul by putting ourselves into Daniel's place. Uh, we speak of Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azael. Most people don't know them by that name. They know them by Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Uh, that was the names that were changed, and we'll probably get into the meaning of those name changes and why they were given. Uh, 
Daniel, however, is the dominant character of the book, and there's a reason for that, and it's a reason that relates to you and I. It relates to the life that we live every day, and we're going to see that as we move along. So let's uh, take just a moment more to ask God's blessing on the time that we spend together. I want to remind you, and again, I think this comes up in your notes at some point, God has invested His power in His Word. You know, there are a lot of people who are ignorant of the Bible and they talk about God's power and having God's power in their life. Uh, you hear a lot today about the power of the name. Just speak the name of Jesus and it'll happen. Well, the name of Jesus is not a magical formula. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot. There is power in the name, but it's important to remember that the name in the Old Testament was a reference to God. He was called Hashem, the name. And when they said Hashem, they were referring to that name that they would not even utter, which we use as Yahweh or Jehovah. And the reason that there's power in that name is because he is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And when Jesus told us to ask of the Father in his name, he wasn't just saying that we say whatever we want God to give us, you know, like Santa Claus at Christmas, and then tag on to the end of it in Jesus' name. What the Lord was talking about, whatsoever you ask in my name, I will do. My name means according to my character and my revealed will. And that's where the power is. And this is why in Psalm 138 and verse 2, he says, you have magnified your word above your very name. Try to think of this from the framework of an Old Testament Jew who would not even utter the name Yahweh, being told that God has magnified his word above his very name. So we begin to understand that in the pages of this book are truths that carry the weight and the power of God. Uh, when Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8, and he said, All flesh is as grass, all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but what lasts forever, the word of our God endures forever. And then, of course, you move on to Isaiah 55, 11, and he tells us that, my word will not return to me void without accomplishing all that I have sent it forth to do. <clears throat> and of course, when we come into the New Testament and we get into John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so all of these things line up to remind us that when we come together and we open this book, we have the opportunity, each and every one of us, to absorb the power that God has invested in His Word into our souls and into our lives to change our lives and also to change the periphery around us. We all have a sphere of influence. We all have a mission field that we can all have a great impact on the lives of other people if we let the Word of God go to work in our life. So that's kind of a long preamble. But with that, let's pray and ask God to bless his word as we study it this evening. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are so thankful 
that we have your word complete before us. And we know from beginning to end that this is truth that is going to live and abide forever. We also realize that we only enter into eternal life as we receive that truth and literally feed on it in our souls. So, Father, we pray that as we open your word tonight, God, the Holy Spirit will do what he alone can do. Prepare our hearts, open our ears to hear. Help us, Father, to understand and then to go out into the world and to apply the things that we're about to learn this evening. Give us insight and understanding into the story of Daniel, the circumstances of his life, the tremendous heroic life that he lived is a life that we can also manifest as we follow you. So we pray that we will play the part that you have called for us to play on the stage of history tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I want to do a little bit of a historical review because I think it's important for us to understand how in the world did they get here? How did they get to the point where the people of God are now a captive nation of a godless heathen country. I think that's probably a topic that's pretty relevant for us in the United States today, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, we, we are experiencing right now an invasion. Uh, it's an invasion that's going to have an end, and it's probably not going to be pretty. And so to think of Daniel and his friends living through a foreign power coming in and dominating them, taking them captive and making their nation a vassal, which in many ways our country has been to other nations. And because over and over and over again, the prophets called on the people to repent, to turn back to God, to turn back to his word, and they refused. In fact, not only did they not repent, they hardened their hearts even more. They became even more corrupt, even more degenerate, until ultimately after over a hundred years, about 120 years of being warned. And this is just by the prophets immediately relating to this situation. You can go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses told them this was going to happen. If you fail to obey, obey me, he said, I'm setting before you blessing and cursing. And we'll look at that uh, later on this evening. But quick historical review. In 721 BC, Assyria came in and took over the northern kingdom and led 80% of the people captive. Uh, this lays a, a foundation for us to understand why the Jews hated the Samaritans. Because what happened when they removed 80% of the population, they flooded in that 80% or filled in that 80% with Assyrians. And the Assyrians married with the remaining people of the northern kingdom. And the product that <coughs> resulted was, of course, the Samaritans. They were considered a mongrel race. Later in 701, so try to keep this uh, timeline in mind. 721 B.C., Northern Kingdom goes captive in 701. The armies of Sennacherib besieged Jerusalem. God miraculously delivered the city due to the prayers of Hezekiah and the prophecy of Isaiah. And you can look that up in 2 Kings 18 and 19. You remember when 
Isaiah said that uh, the people were starving. Uh, they were even selling the dung of birds for people to eat. And Isaiah said, tomorrow uh, food will be selling in the gate for practically nothing. And what happened? The angel of Jehovah, which is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, went forth and struck the army of the uh, Assyrians and uh, basically destroyed them. And so the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled. Unfortunately, due to the uh, foolishness of Hezekiah and showing the wealth of his treasury to an envoy from Babylon, Isaiah then first prophesied the coming captivity of Judah. And that prophecy is in 2 Kings 20, verses 12 to 21. This would have been in 698 B.C. So we've come now about 23 years from the fall of the northern kingdom and now the prophecy of the fall of the southern kingdom. Then we move on to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, in your point four in your notes there, prophesied the fall of Jerusalem in 627 B.C. It's in Jeremiah 2, chapters 2 through 6. And he warned the nation for 40 years, <clears throat> if you don't turn back, if you don't turn to God, if you don't stop your evil ways, uh, if you don't deal with the rampant evil corruption and degeneracy in the nation, God is going to destroy the nation. How long ago was it? 40 years ago, Billy Graham said, if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Think where we were 40 years ago, back in the 80s. Weren't things horrible in the 80s? I thought in the 80s, I thought in the 70s, we were going into military defeat. I thought the Russians were going to take us over in the 70s. 50 years ago, Look where we are today. Look how patient God has been. And look how many over and over have warned and warned and warned America and people laugh and people scoff. And you and I today are in the final generation that's going to see the wrath of God poured out on this nation. And by saying that, don't think that I discount that God could yet deliver us. There is no question in my mind that if enough people, if enough believers get on their knees, if enough Christians pray for this country, if enough people have an impact on their friends, family, and neighbors, enough people turn to Christ, there is no question in my mind that God can yet deliver this nation. But <clears throat> barring that happening, uh, we're looking at a pretty grim future. Don't get discouraged by that. Just look at Daniel and his friends. Life was better for them in Babylon than it was in Judah. God has a plan. God knows how to take care of his own. And we'll deal with that in just a moment. Finally, we know that Daniel and his friends were carried away captive in 605 B.C. There were three deportations. The second deportation, about 586, was uh, Ezekiel uh, and uh, Finally, of course, the nation was ultimately destroyed in the third deportation. <clears throat> I mentioned here in point five the death of the good king Josiah. You'll remember him. This is all related. Uh, Assyria, this is what I mentioned this last time. This is what Israel would do and Judah would do. They had the Assyrians on the north, the Egyptians on the south, both powerful nations. 
So when they wanted help from the Egyptians, they'd run to the Assyrians. When they wanted help from the Assyrians, they'd run to the Egyptians. Finally, there was the buildup of a big battle called the Battle of Carchemish, and Pharaoh Necho was coming up from Egypt to meet Nebuchadnezzar at the Battle of Carchemish. Josiah, my personal opinion, foolishly went out to fight against Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh told him, I'm not here to attack you. I'm not going to, to attack your people. I'm coming to fight the Assyrians. Josiah should have just stood back. But he didn't do it. He entered into the battle. And of course, he was killed in that battle. That was the Battle of Megiddo in 609 BC. At the following Battle of Carchemish, 605, Egypt, allied with her old nemesis, Assyria, was fighting against the brilliant upstart commander, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar at this uh, point was the crown prince, and he was absolutely brilliant, a, a brilliant military commander, a brilliant leader, a brilliant uh, tactician, a brilliant builder, just so many things uh, about him that we learn from history. The Assyrian coalition was defeated so badly that Assyria ceased to exist. You cannot find an Assyrian. You know, you can go all over the world and you can find descendants from various races. You can't find an Assyrian. They're gone. Mm -hmm. They were completely annihilated. Mm -hmm. After the Battle of Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem and Daniel and 50 to 70 captives of the royal family were taken. And then, of course, uh, Daniel's story begins in the book of Daniel. And I just want to point out to you, if you turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, because I find this, uh, and we're going to see a lot of interplay between these various books, various prophetic books of the Old Testament. Ezekiel wrote Ezekiel 14 before he was taken captive. He's teaching Bible class in Jerusalem. The elders come to him and he gives them a prophecy of the fall of Judah. The part that I want us to see is in verse 14 and verse 20. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, that is in the city of Jerusalem, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Why is that important? Daniel's a young man. He's a slave in Babylon. His reputation has already traveled all the way back over 500 miles of desert to Jerusalem. And the prophet Ezekiel names him by name on a par with the greats Noah and Job. How spiritually great must Daniel have been? Look down to verse 20. <clears throat> uh, verse 19, If I send a pestilence into the land or pour out my fury on it in blood and cast it off from man and beast, uh, cast off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it as I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. It's important for us to read this for a couple of reasons. One, to realize that Daniel had already made an impact in history. As a young man, he had made an impact in history. 
Secondly, notice what God says. Why would Daniel be delivered even if God brought armies against the nation, even if he brought pestilence and plague against the nation, why would he or Job or Noah deliver themselves? They would deliver themselves by their righteousness. And that should be a challenge to you and I. What will happen to us in the days ahead is determined by the decisions that we make today. You know, we live in a time when People talk about making preparations. People talk about developing skills. People talk about uh, all kinds of uh, training and so on and so forth. And all of that's fine. I, I have no antagonism to that mentality at all. But I know one thing. The Bible says, in the day of his death, a man can do nothing. All your skill, all your ability... All your preparations means absolutely nothing on the day when God says it's time for your life to come to an end. But the Bible makes it very clear there is one thing that does make a difference. And that is our relationship. You know, the word righteousness that's used here, we tend to think of that in, in terms of conduct. Always doing the right thing, always doing good, always being faithful. And those things are all involved. But that's not the mindset behind the Old Testament Hebrew idea of righteousness. The man who is righteous in the Hebrew mindset is the man who has a living, vital relationship with God. In other words, he is consistently moment by moment and day by day linked to the Lord in his study of the word, in his prayer life, certainly in his conduct and his obedience. But to make it just a system of laws, rules, regulations deprives it of the real vitality of what the spiritual life is all about. And that is it is a relationship with the living God. It's a moment by moment, day by day. We talk about it as a walk. We walk with him. We talk with him, as the song says, and it becomes a fellowship. And that's the critical factor that's going to make a difference. Nan and I can say from having traveled all around the world and the various conditions and situations that we've been in, times when God just would reach down and do things and you're just standing there staggered and going, I can't even believe this just happened. Um, you know, I could go into a lot of examples, but I won't bore you with it. God is faithful to those who rely on him, to those who are faithful to him. And, you know, he, he makes the statement uh, there in... Uh, First Samuel, he says, I will honor him who honors me and I will despise him who despises me. And the last thing you and I want is to be in a position of being despised by God. God deals with us as we relate to him. And that relationship is so important. All right, so let's move on into principles of Bible study because it's important for us to understand why do we look at certain things? Why do we draw certain conclusions? People like to say, well, that's just your interpretation. Uh, scripture tells us, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that there's no such thing as a private interpretation of Scripture. People can come up with whatever they want to come up with. 
but it's not an accurate interpretation of Scripture. So how do we approach the Bible to know that we're actually dealing faithfully with the text? Well, let's look at a few things. The first thing I want you to mention, and it's the top of the page, and by the way, I apologize that these didn't get numbered. I had them numbered on my computer. I know when I'm on target in my studies because the demons get into my computer. You would not believe some of the stuff that happens. I can be writing along and all of a sudden the page goes blank. I can be writing along and all of a sudden I, I'm looking at what I'm typing and I look up and I realize that somehow my computer decided to pull a file from somewhere else into what I'm typing and now I'm typing into a different file. It's a previous study or something. All kinds of things happen. But I want to point out at the top of the page here, never forget that every Bible teacher is fallible. Uh, I just uh, was talking with someone, discussing with someone on Wednesday night after church, and they said that they had heard a prominent Bible teacher. If I mentioned his name, every one of you would know him. And he said, there is nothing in the Bible I do not understand completely. Every Bible teacher is fallible. By the way, he is off in a lot of areas. <laughs> Especially as we go to older. Sometimes, you know, I've been studying the Word for over 50 years. I've read things 50 years ago, 40 years ago, that I sometimes want to bring into class, but I don't know where they came from. So I just have to do the best I can do to try to paraphrase or at least convey the idea of whatever it is that I may have studied. We can get numbers wrong, we can paraphrase wrong, so on and so forth. The point in me telling you this is, go to the Word. That's the source. Check us out by the Word. It never offends me or bothers me in any way if someone says, well, I want to check that out. By all means, go to the Scripture and check it out. I mentioned earlier, and I've got three points here on Bible study with six sub-points, but... God has invested His power in His Word. I can't emphasize that enough. If the United States is to fall, and ultimately it will, we see nothing of the United States in prophecy, in, in for example, the book of Revelation. And it's interesting to me because having studied the Word for 50 years, the question among prophecy students has been, why don't we see the United States of America in the book of Revelation? Well, guess what? You and I are living in real time why we will not be seen in the book of Revelation. We are actually experiencing the explanation right now as we speak. So, so should we move to Jerusalem? No. <laughs> no. Uh, because Jerusalem is going down as well. That's where Antichrist is heading. I don't want to be... I know, but like, this is the best we got right here? This is it. Okay. This, this is where God put us. And, and we're not to give in to fear. Right. I know sometimes I can stress how bad things are, maybe to an extreme, and it's never to create fear. Uh, we need to be honest in looking at the world around us, but we also need to realize our anchor is right here. Our shield, our defender is right here. Mm -hmm. the, the Scripture makes it very clear. When the enemy comes in like a flood, God will raise up a standard against him. And who is that standard? 
The very next verse says the Redeemer who comes out of Jerusalem. So we have all the shield that we need and we should face life uh, with spiritual optimism and historical realism. All right. When we go into the study of the Bible, we need to realize, and I think this came from Aristotle. Once again, I've got a question mark there because I'm quoting something I read many years ago. There are three critical elements that pertain to all truth. I want you to think about this because when you hear Bible teachers teach, apply these tests. It will help you in many, many ways. Number one, truth must be coherent. If someone's teaching a position that just you can't wrap your mind around, you might want to question it. It has to be coherent. It has to be understandable. God didn't write this stuff to confuse us. He wrote it so that we can understand it. Secondly, truth must be consistent. This is the law of non-contradiction. The Bible cannot contradict itself. Now, we're going to get to passages, and I'm going to show you, as we get to those passages, some of the things that look like, well, it looks to me like the Bible is contradicting. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah's timeline and the timeline in Daniel are not exactly the same. Daniel begins in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. I'll show this to you. I'll try to remember to bring this in next week, but I think uh, Jeremiah puts it in the fourth or fifth year. You say, wait a minute, the Bible contradicts itself. Well, it helps to understand a little background. Jeremiah is using Hebrew time, and I think they're off a year, actually. So third and fourth year. Well, if you look at it from a Hebrew, you start that year from a certain time. If you look at it from the time of the Babylonians, you start it from a different time, and it resolves the whole issue. And so many passages in Scripture, I love when people come up to me and they say, the Bible contradicts itself, and I say, show me. Just show me a place. Because nine times out of ten, it's either a misunderstanding, our misperception of what's being said, or there are historical reasons why those two things may not look like they line up to us. Okay? Truth must be consistent. Third, truth must correlate to life and the world as we know it. I don't have to go into a lot of detail, I don't think. If you just pause for a moment and consider some theological positions... The way some people describe Scripture and God don't line up with the world and life as we know it. Something's wrong. Something's not right. For example, if you make thousands of decisions every day, and yet you're told that you're not really making those decisions, God's making you do it, something's not lining up. It doesn't relate to life as we know it. If you have within yourself, and we all do, we do because God implanted it in us, a sense of justice. You know, a person who loves to rob other people, you say, well, they have no sense of justice. No, let them get robbed. Oh, they've got a sense of justice. People that like to bully and dominate other people, let them get bullied and dominated. All of a sudden, that sense of justice... We all have it. When someone tells you that God can do something that seems to you to be unjust, 
something's wrong. And when they tell you that God can be unjust because he's God and he can do whatever he wants, something's not right. The Bible has to correlate to the world and life as we know it. Accuracy in Bible study. This is our third main point uh, for the sake of those listening. Point one, God's invested his power in his word. Point two, there are critical elements pertaining to truth, which we just covered those three elements. Coherency, consistency, and correlation. And third, accuracy in Bible study demands adherence to the science of hermeneutics. Say, what is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. We actually have the word hermeneutics in our New Testament. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him or He has revealed Him. That word is hermeneuo, from which we get hermeneutics. But basically, it's, it's the same science that we would use looking to see, for example, uh, if we have uh, ancient copies of Homer. I think our oldest copies of Homer go back to about 900. Homer lived in the 5th century B.C. So our closest copies to Homer are hundreds of years apart. Uh, we have the copies of uh, Socrates, um, you know, whatever you would want to go back to as an ancient writing. We have copies that are hundreds of years away, and we might, I think of Homer, we only have, as far as ancient originals, we only have like seven copies. When you open your Bible, you have 20,000 manuscripts and fragments sometimes parts of books that have been preserved on vellum or on papyrus or whatever. And all of these 20,000, and guess what? Some of them date within less than 100 years of when the book was written. There is no other book in the world that has the evidence of truth behind it. And if you take all of these thousands and then you take the various... Uh, uh, lines of translation. You go from the Hebrew to the Greek. You go from the Greek to the Latin. You go from the Latin and so on and so forth. And you take all of those different lines of transmission. You know what you find? I think the best example is sitting in the Yad Vashem Museum in Israel. It is a full copy of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is the evangelist of the Old Testament, right? Preaching the gospel 700 years before Christ, telling the world that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and they would name him Emmanuel, which means God with us, 700 years before it happened. And people used to scoff at the book of Isaiah and all of the critics attacked the book of Isaiah because the oldest manuscript we had was from the 10th century after Christ. So they said, you got a 1,700-year gap. How do we know that any of this uh, is true? Uh, a lot of it's been made up. It's changed over the years. Well, guess what happened? 
1947, one year before Israel became a nation, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and when they opened one of those urns, they found the entire scroll of Isaiah from 250 to 300 years before Christ. It's in, not the original, but a copy of it is in the Yad Vashem Museum. The first time I went there, I was actually in the middle of my Hebrew studies, and I remember just standing there and just reading portions of that, of that scroll. It's in a huge circular thing so that the whole scroll can be laid out. You just walk around it and look at it, and you're looking at something that's 23, 2400 years old. You know what they found? They found no real difference between that scroll. Sometimes there would be a difference of a, you remember when Jesus talked about a jot and a tittle? Mm -hmm. That's a yod. It might be missing. That's a jot. It might be missing. Has no material change in the meaning of the text. So the evidence is pretty clear that you and I can trust what we have. When we study the Bible according to the science of hermeneutics, we need to look particularly at three things. And I try to bring these in from time to time as much as possible. Historical background. We just did a historical review. We went from 721 B.C. to 586 B.C. and quickly laid out some of the events that were taking place at that time. We have to have in the historical background an understanding of history, culture, and language. By the way, there's a book called The Bible Background. Uh, there's one for the New Testament and one for the Old Testament. You have a mention of it somewhere uh, in a parenthesis. Um, those books, if you really want to get into some of the historical, cultural, linguistic background, those books will help you a lot. And if you're interested, I can uh, give you a little more information. We need to understand categorical assimilation. What do I mean by that? Categorical assimilation. I believe categorical teaching or the lack of categorical teaching is one of the biggest losses old Preachers 100 years, 200 years ago used to do it. The Puritans were phenomenal at it. Categorical assimilation. What do I mean? So you have a passage that says, and Jesus came to John uh, who was baptizing in the Jordan and was baptized by him. So you take a word. Baptism. So what does baptism mean? Well, immediately people have conclusions drawn based on what they've been taught. And a lot of people say, well, baptism is what saves you. Uh, others will say, as John Calvin said, infant baptism will save you. Um, and on and on and on down the line. Uh, baptism washes away your sins, so on and so on and so forth. When these people bring up all of these goofy ideas and you say, did you realize that there are seven baptisms in the New Testament? <gasps> what do you mean by that? Well, the New Testament talks about seven different baptisms. You remember in 1 Corinthians 10, there's a baptism of Moses. All our 
fathers were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. Did they get wet? Didn't get wet. Baptism of Moses. There's the baptism that Jesus talked of, and I'm just pulling these off the top of my head so my fallibility may come out here. There's the baptism Jesus talked about, the baptism of the cross. James and John said, let, let us sit on your right and left hand. Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? I have a baptism to be baptized with. And he was talking about the baptism of the cross. By the way, did he get wet? Didn't get wet. Very interesting. What's the third, man? Help me out. Baptism of Moses, baptism of the cross, baptism of the Holy Spirit. How could you miss that one? Baptism of the Word. Sorry? Baptism of the Word. Wasn't it the baptism of the Word? The written word be Yeah, I don't think it uses that exact phrase, but it uses Holy Spirit. Baptism of fire. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us, by one spirit, the Holy Spirit, are we all, that is, we who believe, baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit takes us and places us into Christ. Do we get wet? No. Hmm, no water. It's amazing. Number four. John's baptism. Root Baptism of fire. You ever heard of that one? Mm -hmm. Matthew 3, 11. John says, he who comes after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So you have Christians praying, oh, God, baptize me with fire. No, you don't want that. Because the very next verse explains what the fire is. He will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here we have four baptisms, none of which use water. And then we have three that use water. One, the baptism of John, which is not Christian baptism. The baptism of Jesus by John, which is unique. Nobody else has ever experienced a baptism like, did the heavens open up and God say, this is my beloved son in whom I, I don't think so. Did the Holy Spirit descend as a dove? I don't think so. It was unique. Nobody else ever has been, ever will be baptized like Jesus. And then we come to Christian baptism. Here is the only one that most people think about, and yet they forget all the others. So what have I just done? I've just done a categorical study, and we could put in the verses, 1 Corinthians 10, Jesus and Matthew 27, 1 Corinthians 12, Matthew 3, 11, and so on. And we look at it, and what has it just done? In just a few minutes by, how did I state it here? Categorical assimilation. We've all, all of a sudden gotten a new picture. So if some of these use water and some of them don't use water, what does baptism mean? You will hear people say the verb baptizo means to dip or immerse in water. Wrong. That is not the meaning. If we go back to the 5th century B.C., the verb baptizo was used by the Spartans as they prepared to go to war. They took their spears, their uh, swords, and their weapons, and they walked by a trough of 
pig's blood, and they dip them in the pig's blood to identify them with their purpose, which was the slaughter of the enemy. It's an identification. Israel was identified with Moses in the sea and in the cloud. Jesus was identified with sinners on the cross. The Holy Spirit places us into identity with Jesus Christ. The baptism of fire is identification with the wrath of God and judgment. John was bringing the Jewish people into an identification of acknowledging that even though we are the sons of Abraham, we don't automatically make it into heaven. We have to enter into this baptism confessing our sins or confessing that we're sinners. Jesus was baptized for what purpose? Suffer it to be so that we may fulfill all righteousness. Why? Because of his full and complete and total identification with us. And then Christian baptism, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. In 10 minutes, do you have a different view of the idea of baptism? Categorical assimilation. If it's not done, I could have taught you about each one of these over a period of a couple of weeks, and without pulling them together, you would never see the correlation between them. Does it make sense? It's the most glaring lack in too much teaching today. Failure to assimilate passages that talk about the same truth, pull it together, and make sense out of it. I hope I'm not boring you with this, but this is important. And that's what happens with that salvation thing, the very same thing. There's different salvations. Absolutely. Yeah. The book of James uses the word salvation five times, and it never refers to eternal salvation. That's right. And then people get all caught up. Faith without works is dead. What kind of faith are we talking about? People say, well, when you believed in Jesus, your faith was dead. Well, they're, they're completely out of line biblically, but yeah, good example. The third area then in Bible study is exegetical evidence, and that means the Bible must be interpreted and understood as the original recipients would have understood it. Example, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asked, how can a man be born again? Seven times in the following verses, Jesus uses the word believe. And he gets to John 3.16, and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The big theological battleground is what did he mean by world? Well, there are those who will tell you that the world only meant the world of those that God chose to believe. Is that what the original recipients of that verse would have understood it to mean? Or going to 1 John 2, 2, where he says, He, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. He uses the word holokleros, which is like we would say every bit, the whole, whole thing. You know, nothing excluded. But there are people all across this country who will teach you that the word world there doesn't mean world. It actually just means those that God chose to believe. See the problem? 
The problem is, are we understanding it the way the recipients of the letter understood it? Because the author was writing to them in their language, go from English to Spanish. My sister is a translator. She goes with us when we go into Spanish-speaking places. Joan has gone with us into Spanish-speaking places in South America, Peru. She's worked in El Salvador. How much time sometimes that translator has to use explaining something that we say very simply, an American idiom. You know, he's, uh, what are some of the goofy phrases that we use? Yeah, pot, coddle, the kettle, black. Try to explain that to somebody in Spanish or in Shona in Africa or in Mandarin in, in China. And, and you explain it the best you can and they're still going, doesn't make any sense. And so we have to deal with all those kind of things because there are statements that are made to people within their culture and their context that are perfectly clear they don't make sense to us at all. All right, I'm going to pass very quickly over this next little bit, and then we're going to call it a day. The five cycles of national discipline in Leviticus 26. If you would just quickly turn to Leviticus 26, I mentioned earlier that Moses warned the children of Israel what was going to happen back 14, 1500 years before Christ, and a thousand years later, what he told them would happen is happening. Uh, Leviticus. Leviticus comes before Numbers. Leviticus 26. Here's what he told them. Leviticus 26 verse 1. You should not make idols for yourselves, nor carve images or sacred pillars. You should not set up a gravestone on your land. Don't bow down to it. I am the Lord your God. You should keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commands and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. Uh, Your field will yield its produce. The trees of the field will yield their fruit. In other words, I'm going to pour out blessing on you. But, verse 14, if you do not obey me, and do not observe all these commandments. If you despise my statutes, if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform my commandments but break my covenant, I will do this to you. This is the beginning of five cycles of discipline. And I'll give you the verses. You can read through them. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But here is, let's, let's put it in terms that we understand today, the path from the cross to the crown. This is the plan of God for us to go from faith in Christ to a faithful life to eternal reward. That's his will. We decide, no, I think I'm going to take a detour. I'm going to go this way. And immediately what happens, things start going bad. And we start going into increasing cycles of discipline. It happens to us just like it happened to Israel. But here we're talking about a judgment of a nation. And so the five cycles are, again, read through these on your own. Cycle one is verse 14 to 17. You don't need to write it down. It's right there in your notes. Cycle two is verse 18 to 20. Cycle three is verse 21 to 22. Cycle four, verse 23 to 26. And cycle five 
the final cycle of discipline, verse 27 to 39, and this is where the nation ceases to exist. Now these warnings were given specifically to the nation of Israel. But if you study history, you find that in every great nation that was enlightened with regard to the word of God, the same thing seems to happen. And I would suggest that we in the United States are somewhere in maybe the middle of the fifth cycle of discipline. At the end of each cycle, there's a phrase, and this is what he says. After all this, after all of my discipline, after suffering all my judgment, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins, and it ends up, of course, with the nation being destroyed. Think about America. Any of you have parents that grew up in the 1920s? Grandparents that grew up in the 1920s? They ever talk to you about the 1920s? What they call the 20s? It was the roaring 20s. People were spending money like water. People were buying everything that they could buy. It was like, you know, it was, the party was never going to end. But there was a tremendous amount of corruption and perversion and degeneracy and evil that came in in 1920. What happened in the 1930s? Depression. Great Depression. By the way, if the federal government hadn't implemented some of the things it implemented, we'd have come out of the Great Depression much, much quicker. They prolonged it, knowingly or stupidly, who knows? And then we get through the Great Depression and what happens? World War II. And now we have what we often refer to as the greatest generation. Why is that? Well, there's an old saying, hard times make strong men. Good times, prosperous times, make weak men. I think that's pretty true. <clears throat> A lot of strong men that had gone through years and years of hardship and difficulty went off to war and fought and won a glorious victory. And then what did we immediately do? Do you know that nobody talked about the American dream until after World War II? You know what the American dream was? Own your own home, own your own car, have a good job, take care of your family. Do you realize that in 1950 and up into mid-60s, on a high school education, you could own your own home, own your own car, and feed a family of four? And that was with one person working. With one person working. That was a, a one-worker household. <clears throat> I think a, a home at that time cost 20000 maybe. A good car, in fact... Uh, Great car, maybe 1500 and look where we are today. So we definitely as a nation have experienced <clears throat> what's going on here. But remember, I want to leave you with this. When Sennacherib surrounded Jerusalem, the leader was Hezekiah, and Hezekiah prayed to God for deliverance, and the prophet Isaiah said, deliverance will come, and there was no other army that came to rescue them. There was no help from any other human quarter that came to rescue them. The Lord Jesus Christ went out and won the victory. That could happen for America.
that could happen if enough Christians were diligent enough, devoted enough in our prayers, praying for God to rescue this nation. And I pray, you know, the 7,000 that have never bowed their knee to Baal, we never know who they are. We don't know who the remnant are, how big the remnant is. But we do know that we are to be part of it and we can play our part. And believe it or not, this little gathering in this home, small as it is, humble as it is, this little group right here can change history. God doesn't require multitudes. He only requires a few. When Saul first started to fight the Philistines, what did Jonathan say? Jonathan and his armor bearer went out against an entire garrison of Philistines, and Jonathan said, God can deliver with few as well as by many. Let's go attack them. And he began the defeat of the Philistine nation. So it can start right here. And my prayer is that it will start here and that it'll have an impact. And by the way, never forget one more little word of encouragement. You ever read the book of Ruth? What an idyllic, romantic, beautiful little story. There's peace, there's prosperity, there's love, there's everything that we all desire. Do you remember what the verse, first verse? Time of the book of Judges. And it happened in the time of the Judges. When every man did right in his own eye. My humble opinion is that the thing that changed things in Bethlehem was a man by the name of Boaz who trained his workers to love God, to be faithful, to be humble. And God put a hedge of protection around Bethlehem and said, this is my ground and the enemy is not coming here. And he can do that for us. All right, I've gone over time. We started a little bit late. I hope I didn't bore you to death. Uh, we are going to pick up with lessons from the first eight verses next week, and we'll move on into more thrilling and exciting things. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for each and every one who's come here tonight. Father, you brought each one of us into this world because you have a purpose for our life. You want to use us in some great way. Uh, you don't call people to be mediocre. You call people to be heroes in their own life, in their own place, to fulfill your own purpose. Uh, we ask, Father, that we will be those people, that we will be faithful to your word, that we will be diligent in our prayers. We pray, Father, for our nation. We pray that you'll undertake in behalf of this country because, Father, you know as we know, the majority of the people in this country do not want happening what's going on here. Stir your people. Challenge us to begin to fight behind the scenes in the realms of the spirit to wage effective war with those weapons that you have given us, the shield of faith and the sword of truth. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.